whether or not we can keep our focus narrow while, while still looking, you know, seeing the forest and the trees and all that, right? Can we keep our focus and can we accelerate velocity? And, you know, it's a good problem to have a big TAM to go after, but you have to be really focused to do it. And, you know, any executive team at a high growth startup will tell you the number one thing the board asks about is hiring. Hi there. This is Vijay Damoji Prapu, and you're listening to the B2B Go-To-Market Leaders Podcast. The show where I go behind the scenes with top go-to-market practitioners to discuss their mindset and tactics. Welcome to yet another episode of the B2B Go-To-Market Leaders Podcast. Today, I have with me Anthony Cesario, who is the VP industries and go-to-market solutions at Clary. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Anthony. Great to be here. Thanks, DJ. Yeah, so super excited. I've been following you, not a whole lot, but somewhat. And then what actually caught my attention on LinkedIn is when you mentioned or responded to, I think, uh, one of your colleagues' LinkedIn posts around the importance of having curiosity, right? Curiosity as a differentiator, key factor when it comes to goal market execution. Okay. So that post or that one comment caught my attention. I said, you know what? I need to get Anthony on my podcast, but this doesn't stop there. I go to your LinkedIn post. What takes me, gets me even more excited is when I read your LinkedIn summary and it talks about how you plan or how you have bucketized your time across the week. So we'll hold off on that question. I really want to get your thoughts on that. But let's start off with my signature question, which uh, my listeners are eager and excited. And they are curious to listen to go-to-market leaders around this topic, which is how do you define go-to-market? Yeah. So again, thanks for having me. I keep things simple, maybe overly simple sometimes. But for me, go-to-market is really just, you know, it's that kind of end-to-end business process of creating a desired outcome, usually revenue from a product or service offering. Like that's really it. And there's a lot that goes into that, but uh, I try to keep how I think about go-to-market pretty simple in that regard. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a very simplistic definition and view. I think if you up it, that's what it gets down to. But here's the thing, right? Everything that we know are as a concept, we know it, but execute it is super, super hard. I think that's where the real go-to-market leaders stand out. So talk to us on how you approach the execution piece around go-to-market. Yeah. I mean, at Clary, there's a concept we talk a lot about called operationalizing growth. And, you know, we think about how do you operationalize growth? And that has a lot to do with go to market, right? And for us, it, it always starts with what we would call SGIs, the strategic growth initiatives of the business. You know, what is it that we need to accomplish over whatever period of time to take the company wherever we're trying to take it? And, you know, from there, when, when you have really clear SGIs, that's when the go-to-market starts to come in where now we need to decide, one, what are the targets that we would need to set in order to go deliver on those SGIs? What are the types of execution insights and instrumentation that we would need to just kind of to, to even run the business in a way that, that we can go deliver on that? 
mm-hmm. on those targets. And then you get into kind of the cadences and communication that need to happen and, and these types of things. And then you get down to enabling folks on the go-to-market. And that whole part is, you know, a lot of times people kind of jump right into, okay, what do we need to build? And what's the sales team need to look like? And, and all these kind of things. And I think the program management of go-to-market is really, really important, right? That kind of starting with what are we trying to accomplish? What are the guiding principles? What are the constraints we're operating within? Who are the players and who are the work stream leads? And all of that and making sure you have the instrumentation to go execute against it. And the companies that I get to work with that are great go-to-market organizations, they get all that really well. They do that really well. And then they go execute within those work streams across product and sales and strategy and enablement and CS and all the teams that kind of contributors to the process. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, yes. When I asked you a question, you started with that one or two lines, but then when we double click, there's a whole bunch of processes. There's a whole bunch of systems approach, the tools and the players, the people that have to be taken into account to eventually connect the dots between, okay, the strategy, the execution, the measurement, and then how is it all lining up to what you're able to ask the SGI at Clary. And of course, you need to build clarity around all those things. And you're doing that at Clary for sure. So switching gears slightly over here on a lighter note, how would your parents or kids describe what you do at work? (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned that you might ask me this question. So I I wouldn't ask my kids. I have two boys. Dominic is going to be seven next week. Daniel's uh, four. And Dominic's answer was great. I think I probably groomed him well. He said, well, you help people solve tough problems or hard problems. And you do it over your computer. <laughs> that was kind of cool. I, that's I try to talk to him, you know, when I'm spending a lot of time and energy on something. I want him to know that it's important and, you know, that what I'm doing is really helping other people and making their lives easier. And that makes me feel better about it when, when I explain it that way. So that was great that he's been listening. Yeah. My four-year-old just said computers. So uh, That's it. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> And he actually said pewters. So uh, he said, Danny, what do I do for, you know, what's daddy's work? Pewters. He's on the computer always. Nice. <laughs> well, my parents are a little different. My mom, you know, she would probably, she's worked in a hospital for like 40 years. She would say something about salesforce.com maybe and and that I'm doing a really important work. And she'd brag a little bit. And my dad was, he was a business leader. He had kind of a great journey. He came up through HR. He became a VP of HR. And he was really business-minded at an MBA and uh, ended up actually becoming the president of his business by way of the HR kind of channel, which is not something you see very often. He'd probably tell you that I'm helping grow a business right now if you, if you asked him. Absolutely. That's what, especially most of the folks within the go-to-market organization, we are all about helping growing the business. But how we do that is by serving and understanding our customers. Absolutely. So that's a good segue into what actually prompted you to go down this path. What was your career like? I mean, how did you start off? And then how did you eventually get to what you're doing at Clary today? Yeah, I've been really fortunate. So I never really wanted to go into sales. I thought I was going to be uh, working marketing. In college, I interned in advertising at Ogilvy & Mather in Shanghai, actually. And I loved it so much that you know I just kind of anticipated I'd go down that marketing route. And my brother was in advertising and things like that. And I was really kind of lucky. I had a friend who was doing some sales training right when I got out of college. And the trainer, the Sandler coach was um, from Philadelphia like me. Mm-hmm. And so my friend said, Hey, good guy to network with. You should come meet him. And you know, you're know, you looking for your first job and all that. So what they were working on that day in their sales training, when I went and showed up was the pain funnel in sales, right? 
And I didn't know anything about sales at the time. And so when I went and sat in, I was just like super curious at the end of that because it would just sound like so much fun, like taking a business problem and really peeling it back three layers to understand what's going on and why and how people make decisions. And I was just kind of fascinated by it. So that's what kind of sparked me to go into sales, even though I wasn't really planning on it and worked for a little startup, right? I met a guy in that actual class who was a CEO of a company working on his own sales because he just kicked off the company. And I did I wore a few hats for him in his little four-person consulting startup. So that was my first job. Mm-hmm. And sales and marketing and a little bit of everything. It was you know, like you do in a company that small. Right. And then I went to a great company called Taleo, which at the time was kind of like the number two SaaS company in the world behind Salesforce. We had uh, HR software, recruiting software, talent management software. I was a, that's where I got like my real start in sales. I was a BDR and I got to learn a lot there about how sales and marketing work together. And we brought a new product line to market right when I started. So it was kind of cool to see that unfold. How do you start selling a new product into your customer base? And so I was on a team that was doing that, that job of like going and selling something completely new that our customers didn't know anything about Mm -hmm. into our customers, which was pretty cool. And we were bought by Oracle. So I got folded into this big company and, you know, I probably the best decision I made back then was to know I wasn't smart enough to know, to make a decision. A lot of people left Taleo after the acquisition and I kind of wanted to stay and see what it was all about. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I went into this big company and, you know, at the time Oracle had bought Taleo to, as part of their go-to-market to scale into the SaaS business, you know, going from on-premise software into cloud software. And so it was really cool to kind of see that on the front lines and, just how you have to think about talent differently and do you have the right people to go sell these new products and do we keep this standalone or do we integrate the code into our the platform we've been building for years and so got to watch all that decision making as a sales rep and you know was selling this new platform and had a lot of great learnings and just successes and failures uh, throughout that journey and that's when I got you know found some success and it had some leaders that we're starting to tap me to help with decision making at a higher level on you know how we should be thinking about where we go next and what kind of things does the product need to go into new markets and I was really fortunate to get pulled into a lot of go to market discussions and I learned that was kind of what I enjoyed most the sales part was becoming blocking and tackling and it was more the working with product marketing and working with product development and working with doing territory planning and headcount planning and all that stuff yeah that was all pretty cool and fun. So that's when, uh, that's when I decided to go into the high growth world and, and leave Oracle. I learned at a big company, the higher you go, the less you might actually get the impact and go to market. Actually. Right. <laughs> I knew I wanted to kind of go somewhere in the high growth space and, and help to grow a business. And I just got incredibly lucky that Clary, you know, had reached out because, you know, Clary, Literally, what we do as the company is go work with the top go-to-market teams across the globe and help them kind of instrument that you know their go-to-market. So I knew it was going to be an MBA on go-to-market, and um, you know at the very least um, that was enough for me. So there you go. That's the journey. That was a lot, but that's how we got today. Yeah. So as you're saying that, I mean, a lot of light bulbs went in my mind, and some patterns or something that I'm curious about as you were evolving your career, Anthony, is you started off as an intern in the advertising world. Right. And clearly, when you're working at a tier one advertising company, OM, and from there you went into a startup in sales. And of course, not just sales, when you're like a four person company, you are wearing multiple hats. 
And eventually that led you down to the path of BDR and growing up the ranks at Talio and Oracle. So I'm actually curious how your internship to the startup first job to the BDR and the growth in sales and sales leadership actually panned out. And what I want to really get your thoughts on is when you're in the advertising world, you are looking to develop copy, right? And as any top-notch advertiser will know, you literally have only a few seconds or less to get someone's attention. And I'm sure even when you go into like a BDR and even into a sales role, that skill is important. So I'm curious, like, yeah, I want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a good question. I would say probably even higher level. I think what Ogilvy did for me and, and, and especially being in China and getting to work, you know, in Shanghai, what I realized was one that it was really fun helping companies solve business problems and that I could make an impact on them, even, you know, when I was a sophomore in college. So that like lit a fire. I, I just wanted to go do more of that. Like I couldn't get done school fast enough at that point because I just wanted to go like, I'm like, oh, wow, I can do this now. Like, let's go do it. That was the biggest thing I would say was like, that's what, you know, I didn't really care where I was doing it. I just wanted to go fine. And, and that's what intrigued me about the startup. When I went to work for Starforce with Darren Starr, you know, Darren was a really smart guy. He came from the, the VC world and uh, he was from Kleiner Perkins and you know, he's standing up this consult Salesforce consulting firm. And when I realized that I was going to get to wear a lot of hats, create marketing copy and mm -hmm. write your own call scripts. Yeah. Write your scripts and product summaries. And, you know, we were doing all kinds of, I knew I didn't know what I was going to learn, but I was going to learn a lot. Right. That was just really interesting to me. Again, back to curiosity. I was just kind of curious on like what I was going to learn and, and, and what it's like to be at a business at that stage. Mm hmm. You know, when it comes back to like the copy and the marketing stuff, you know, I think I always joke, I'm a marketer in a sales guy's body who thinks he's a product guy and wants to be a strategy guy. Like yeah. that marketing experience I had played a profound role in kind of shaping how I think about communicating with, with anybody, but with, especially with businesses. And my brother was a really, really successful creative director before he became a water entrepreneur. You, you can go look him up online. And so I've learned a lot from him as well on how to communicate with people um, and, and how do you keep it human and how do you really keep things simple? So yeah, that stuck with me, certainly from Ogilvy and going into sales and really thinking about how do we tell our story to other human beings in a way that's going to resonate with them. Hmm. That's been, I think, uh, something that's helped me a lot. Yeah. I'm always curious and I always look to read up and also just follow a lot of these practitioners around how to communicate in different formats, how to communicate in different channels, and how to get someone's attention in the shortest possible time span, right? That's one. But once you get that attention, once you get a follow-up meeting, yes, you got 30, 60, 90 minutes, or even half a day, how do you then deliver value? Because they have carved out time. Yeah, we think a lot about, there's a concept that my sales teams put the work a lot that we call moments that matter. And for every meeting that we have, for every pursuit that we're going after, we'll literally write down what are the moments that matter. And what that means is, what do we want the people that we're interacting with to walk away saying, thinking, or feeling after our interaction, right? About Clary as a company, about our product, about us as individuals. Yep. And we literally write it down. Like, you know, in this case, it might be my moment that matters for this would be BJ Walkaway saying, wow. Really enjoyed that time with Anthony. It's going to be helpful for the listeners. Hope to have them back again someday. Like that might be the moments that matter. 
and we'll build the entire strategy for the meeting around that. And that's something I, you know, again, I learned from advertising where, you know, you kind of back into the experience that you're trying to create. Mm -hmm. And similarly for companies, right? I think it's an important thing to think about is, you know, what is the experience we're trying to create for our users, for our customers, right? What is the perception we want them to have of us? And that dictates a lot. That dictates how you build product, right? What are the type of insights you want to surface in your product and things like this? It dictates how you communicate. It dictates the type of salespeople you hire, the type of marketers you hire, like all of that can stem back from what what is the experience that you're looking to create, you know, for your customers. Yeah. So I'm sure because you're in sales and you're a lot in the customer facing roles and interactions, but eventually you need to get those insights and learnings inward to the product teams and you are clearly communicating and working very closely with the product marketing organization and even like the tech support and others. So how do you bring that, as you said, moments that matter, MTM, that's what I'm going to call it now, MTM, right? So moments that matter, how do you bring that and how do you work with the product marketing team and eventually the product management team in building or incorporating those insights into the product? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. In my opinion, it's so crucial to have product management and product marketing very closely interwoven to the front lines. And there's a great body of research out there around uh, something called ONA, Organizational Network Analysis. That Back in my HR days, it was kind of like trendy, a hot topic in HR, like how does work actually get done within companies, right? And there's great with all the technology that's out there now, you know, Zoom and Slack and email, and you can imagine if you were to look at the patterns of data on who people actually spend the most time with over Slack, over Zoom, mm-hmm. over email, you would see a really interesting web that has nothing to do with the org structure of the company. And I would argue that great go-to-market teams, you would see a really tight-knit connection between product marketing, product, mm-hmm. growth marketing, and sales. Because there's like a really important feedback loop that has to be happening there in a machine-like way or machine actual way. So that's how we think about it. I think different companies take different approaches. Personally, I think product marketing, I think they can really be the glue to help kind of connect a few of these pieces. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard to translate directly from sales to the product development team, right? You know, product marketing can maybe play that intermediary a little bit. But that's not always the role that they play in companies. Sometimes product marketing might just be more content focused and things like that. So, but yeah, for me, that's kind of the formula is keep a really close cadence. At Clary, we literally build programs around this stuff. So like for my business right now, I'm building our market expansion into new verticals right now. Mm-hmm. And we have an entire program around it where, like I mentioned, we have our program charter, right? What are we trying to accomplish? Guiding principles, how we make decisions, all that stuff. But then we have a roster and you know, we have who owns the product uh, marketing work stream, who from product, we have engineering involved, right? All the way down to HR and talent, we have all the stakeholders and we all are putting in our kind of program updates on a regular basis. Everyone's invited to our weekly meeting and, you know, a lot of people come and participate. And it's just like when you keep everybody focused, narrowly focused on this business outcome that we're trying to accomplish and together regularly, it's cool. It, it naturally, the information naturally flows really well. 
Yeah, I love that concept of, uh, again, MTM, moments that matter, and then incorporating that into each and every function. I mean, it's not just about the customer-facing functions, but even within HR, right? Because HR and talent has talent team has a big role in figuring out and hiring the right talent who can get that concept and not just get the concept, but then put it into practice on a daily basis. It's massive. I always remind my HR business partner, you know, that the B is, it should be extra capitalized, right? That's what this is. You're my business partner. And so, you know, she comes to our key meetings, our QBRs, right? It's not just an HR function, it's a business function. And especially in the tech world where talent right now is such a scarce resource across engineering and sales, and it can be your biggest differentiator or your biggest incompetence as a company. So yeah, if if you're not factoring the talent piece into your go-to-market, you're probably in trouble. Yeah. So two questions that come to my mind. One is I would like you to share a GTM success story. I know when you and I talked earlier, you were talking about how you helped increase the ACV in the whole enterprise sales motion. Perhaps you can shed more light into what is the challenge, what are the hurdles, and how you and the team actually overcame that, the entire go-to-market sequence to increase that ACV. Let's start with that question first. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, I think it goes back to SGIs, right? And when I came into Clary, one of the things our CRO you know, brought me in here to do was to go further up market. We started getting into some larger enterprise pursuits and felt like the value that Clary provides is so massive. For those who don't know who Clary is, we help companies predict revenue. You know, We make the revenue process more connected, more efficient, more predictable. And when you get into large enterprise companies, you know, driving more forecast accuracy, you know, week two, week three in the quarter for publicly traded companies is a massive value add. And so for me, that's kind of where we started when we looked at this SGI of how do we go further up market? We wanted to really think about what is the value story there, right? Like how are we going to communicate the impact that we can help make at that, at that level? And when we saw, you know, how massive the opportunity was, you know, especially in large software companies and things like this. That was the first thing we did. You know, we validated, is there a value story to tell? Right. You can't just ask for more money from our product if there's there's not a value story there. Right. And then how did you do the validation? I think that's a very important piece within the go-to-market machine. The validation of... When you said about, uh, when you told that it's a big market and there is potential. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So this is a really, really important thing that a lot of companies get wrong. Yes. So... The very first thing we did was a prioritization exercise. There's a concept that we talk about a lot of clarity called focus capacity. How do you focus the capacity of the go-to-market teams on the right motions? Mm-hmm. And so for us, if you're going up market, right, that can mean different things for different teams. If you're looking to go up market, you need to one, prioritize your accounts by way of ICP, right? Ideal customer profile. Are they ICP? Are they adjacent ICP? Are they secondary, right? Like, so priority one, priority two, priority three type approach. You have to start with that baseline to understand, okay, what is the PAM and SAM of accounts that we can actually go after if we want to go further up market? Yeah. And then in our case, if you're trying to drive incrementally more revenue, you also need to understand what is the maybe addressable revenue for that account? Right. So come up with some little formula for us. It's not too hard. If you're selling to go to market teams, you know, you can get a sense from LinkedIn and things like that. How many sellers, how many marketers, you know, things like that, that they have in the company. And so we broke our business down by ARR bands and priorities and said, okay, 
there's this many companies worth this much revenue to us, call it million dollar plus, 500K plus, 250K plus, so on and so forth. And once we had that kind of segmentation, then we could validate one, that, that there's a worthwhile market to go after there. And then two, that helped us drive everything from territory planning and just coaching the reps on where to focus their time, building equitable territories by way of those revenue bands, right? Everybody gets this many million dollar plus accounts, 500K plus accounts. So just that first piece of like getting the planning right allowed us to have more predictable execution because we knew that everyone had similar books. We knew that everyone was focused on similar size accounts. And that really changed not only the size of the deals that we were doing, but the efficiency at which we were selling, we needed we, our pipeline, our conversion rates went way up with more focus and, and things like that. So that was an example for us. And like you mentioned, yeah, we went from, let's just for numbers sake, say average enterprise deals of 100K to, you know, three or 400K pretty quickly just by way of focusing the team further up market. Yeah. I like the way how you called out around, I think, double clicking and doing the homework, the due diligence, right? So one is, yes, you can say it's a huge addressable market, but what does it really mean? And the way you guys did the exercise of, okay, breaking it down by segments, you can do your homework and due diligence on the number of seats or potential seats. And of course, you know, your pricing, you come up with the different bands. And after that, it's all going in. It's almost like ABM, account-based marketing, but then very targeted into, I don't know, maybe it's the top 50 or top 100 in different regions or in different bands. Yeah, 100%. It's, you know, most, um, for sure, startups and later stage startups, you know, with VC funding are often working within models that their VCs hand them or that, you know, they recommend they work within, you know, strongly recommend that they work within. And a lot of times those models are very, very top down. Mm-hmm. And that's important, right? It's important to go top down, start with the TAM and SAM and SOM and all that. But I think it's also important, especially in the enterprise motion, to go bottoms up. And that's kind of what you do there, right? When you get to that prioritization exercise, you can do a bottoms up analysis and start to look at, you know, we'll map out things like we call path to plan, right? Like, okay, what would it actually look like to do X million in revenue? How many accounts of which size? revenue bands would we have to close to get to this number? Mm-hmm. And that focuses all the go-to-market teams, right? If if we need to go way up, you know, if we're going to do 20 deals over a million dollars or something like that, we have, might have to sit down with the product team and say, what do we need to deliver in the next couple of cycles to those service accounts of this size? If we're going to go down market, right? Into SMB, that might change something. And we'll say, okay, do we have the product cycles to deliver what we need to do and go after this revenue? And that prioritization exercise really becomes a great foundation, like a bottoms up foundation to get all teams on the same page on what their responsibilities will be to go execute. Absolutely. I think a couple of points, right? One is when you're doing or going mid-market or up-market, I mean, mid-market or enterprise is one, but when you're going into more of the SMBs, potentially it can be like a Mm self-serve product-led growth, which means is the product ready? And are you, do you have the right, uh, like the free trial versus the conversion or the whole journey mapped out, not from the internal company point of view, not from clarity point of view, but for that end user that you're targeting versus if you go into an enterprise, it's more of an ABM play, a targeted account play. Now you're talking about having the right content you're talking about having the right experiences to be delivered. It can be maybe the half a day or one day event at those specific uh, companies, enterprises, right? And then you also have the community. So Anthony, something that I'm 
grappling with and I'm testing broadly with the go-to-market leaders is the concept of what I call as the three pillars, three pillars of a go-to-market engine, which is one, it's a content. Two is the experiences. And three is the community. So broadly speaking, we are talking about content, experiences, and then community. Have these three pieces in your go-to-market. I think that's the holy grail. So what role did specifically content play when you are looking or going, increasing the ACV from 100 to 340? Like, can you talk to us about that? The role of content, what is there versus what needed to be created maybe by the product market team or the brand or the content marketing team? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there were several roles. One is we had to take a really deep dive and decide, again, back to moments that matter, who is the audience that we're trying to serve and what do we want them thinking about Clary? Mm-hmm. And you know, one of Clary's superpowers is that we're just loved at the board, CEO, CRO type level. You can imagine, you know, revenue predictability is important to these folks. Yeah. And that's something that we think is, is special and, and we take really seriously. And so one of the things that we started thinking a lot about from a content perspective is, is our content, is it ready for that audience? Right. Is it ready for, you know, the CROs and presidents and CEOs of, of the top companies in the world? And is our voice coming across that way? And, you know, there's, we have, there's a lot of, this is a busy space that we're in, you know, sales technology and things like this. And a lot of people have different voices. And, you know, I would argue most of them aren't tailored for an executive audience. They're more operationally driven and things like this or for the functions themselves. So that was one thing we, we thought a lot about from a content perspective and made sure that we had polish and good guiding principles around was that we were communicating in the voice of, our most special customers, which are, you know, the executive teams and things like that. And mm-hmm. that was one piece. So we kind of built content around that. Things that matter. You think about it'd be easy for us to go build content around forecasting, right? Right. But that's not really a CEO level topic. So we would build content around things like transitioning from hardware to software or going from SaaS to product-led growth, or Mm -hmm. these are the topics that these folks are thinking about and how they think about go-to-market. And the more we could speak at their, build content in the world that they're living in, I think the the more relevant we we were. So that was really helpful. Mm -hmm. And then that whole value story, I'd say that was the other one, right? Really building out a value services kind of not just, you know, content, but, you know, we built out a whole business unit around it and, you know, building the content that needed to serve that. And again, it's most people hear value engineering or value services and you think ROI, right? Oh, I need an ROI calculator to show what this is going to, we would argue that there's a lot of content that actually comes with that having someone actually believe that you're going to help them do some run their go to market better. And so a lot of that, you know, comes in the form for us of content around SGIs, right? Helping them understand that we're actually going to help them accelerate their go to market into product led growth or their go to market into, you know, SaaS revenue streams for the first time from on premise or something like that. Got it. So we built a lot of content, you know, in that regard. And that gave us credibility to go command higher prices in some of those enterprise cycles. Yeah, I love the bear you emphasize and touch the point of, I think content played a key role in that whole go-to-market execution and up-leveling your ACV, right? For you or for your target audience, which is the executives, the CEO and the board to connect with the value of what Clary can do. It starts with how is it going to help them as they're evolving their business model, be it an on-prem to SaaS or a PLG, product-led growth. So 
first of all, understanding that and then building content around it, right? So would you agree that content, community, and experience are key pieces within the go-to-market machine? A hundred percent. I mean, if I had to pick, if you were to talk to our customers, Clary's customers, about what makes our company so special, I would argue that you'd probably hear one, two, or three of those things about you know what makes us special and whether it's the content that we provide that is actually valuable, you know, at the highest levels of the business or the experiences that we obsess over and think deeply about and hopefully deliver on for customers. Or if it's the community that we've created, this, you know, community across our portfolio of people that literally like that we have CROs call us and tell us that, Hey, I just interviewed for my next job and I told them I won't take it unless I have clarity. Like that's a community, right? Like that is, you know, these are raving fans that when you build a community like that, for us, you know, we think it's, we talk about our, uh, the double moat at Clary. Mm-hmm. That's the second moat. That community is that moat. And when you build it, it gets wider and wider and wider. Yeah, absolutely. But it all starts with the content and the experiences. And once people get attracted towards those components, that's what will grow that whole, the second mode, which is the community piece. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So let's switch gears and go more into the forward looking. What are your big initiatives or focus areas for 2021 and 22? Yes, that's kind of what I'm doing right now. I mean, so to your point earlier, um, I've run sales teams for a bit now. And this year, I actually stepped a little bit more into go-to-market strategy role to kick off the year. We had, as Clary sets our sights on IPO here, we had a big SGI as a company of what we call Expand Our Strike Zone, which is how do we go? There's a great TAM opportunity. How do we go create more SAM and SOM that we can go serve as our platform gets used by more and more go-to-market teams, right? We started off having sales teams use us a lot and then marketing teams started coming in and then customer success teams and now finance teams and product marketers. So as we look at expanding our strike zone, there's a couple of key motions you know, that we think about and how do we go serve more vertical markets. Mm-hmm. Where are markets out there that are looking for visibility and rigor and predictability across their go-to-market motions? Yeah, and, and we think there's a lot of interesting stuff there. And we think about personas, right? Who are people that are stakeholders in the go-to-market process, and how do we go create experiences for them that would you know delight and, and add value inside of our platform? Mm-hmm. And then business models, right? You mentioned one big one. We're really big believers in the move to product-like growth. We think that's a major shift that's happening in the market. And, you know, we want to be able to go serve our customers that are making those transitions. You know, as you can imagine, it becomes much harder to predict growth in a PLG, you know, product like growth landscape. You know, we're thinking deeply about that. And so what I've been doing this year is helping us kind of build to go to market in those motions. And now as we get into the second half of the year, we're really kind of now double clicking and I'm building out, you know, the vertical selling teams and things like this that are going to go serve the strategy that, that we set up in the first half of the year. Fantastic. Really exciting stuff. And I will be looking forward to maybe having more conversations with you and I'll be studying and uh, tracking you guys on how we are executing that go to market and growing into more territories, more personas, more verticals. Absolutely. So in that regards, obviously you got a big charter for this year and next, what do you think are like the one or two barriers that might affect your plans? You know, it's whether or not, you know, we can keep our focus narrow while, while still looking, you know, seeing the forest and the trees and all that, right? Can we keep our focus and can we accelerate velocity? 
And, you know, it's a good problem to have a big TAM to go after, but you have to be really focused to do it. And, you know, any executive team at a high growth startup will tell you, you know, the number one thing the board asks about is hiring, Mm -hmm. right? Can you hire fast enough, right? And, you know, in in a company like ours, certainly on the product side, you know, engineering hiring is something that, you know, we have a really cool company. We have, you know, AI machine learning that works and solves real important business problems. That helps. Yeah. But you're still battling for engineering talent with, you know, the who's who of Silicon Valley and things like this. And so that's one thing. Can we continue to hit our hiring targets, you know, which we've been doing, but, you know, as you grow and scale and, you know, we just passed the 400 employee mark, you know, as you get to 500 and 700, 800 employees, can you continue to hire world-class talent at scale, that's probably the one that we've been executing on for sure. But like, you know, you wonder, can we keep doing it? Can we keep doing it? Can we keep bringing world-class people? Can we, that's one thing, you know, if you were to talk to people at our company, they would tell you what they love about Clary is the culture. We have this really, really, really special culture. I think it helps that we're still founder run and you want to keep scaling that, you know, you don't want to lose that over the next stages of growth, right? Because that that's one of the things that help us keep really high retention rates on our talent. And, you know, I would say that some of that stuff, right? You know, can we continue to hire in a world-class way across product and and go to market? And can we retain the talent that we have? I know we can execute. It's less on the execution side. I know we've got the strategy right. So it's just more about, can we keep the resources we need to go to deliver on, on the strategy that we've built? Absolutely. I think that's one of the biggest challenges, especially in a high growth world. It's all about talent. And then culture. It's not just about getting the right talent, but will they fit in within our culture? And you also mentioned about maintaining focus while not losing the big picture. Those two are big, big areas. But besides that, let's say if you were given like a five, six or seven figure budget, where would you invest besides people? Um, Well, again, I'll double down. I'd invest in engineers, right? I don't think we could ever have enough great engineers. What else? You know, one of the things, one of the skill sets that I've really had to learn here recently, and it's been great, and we've talked about it a little bit, is just world-class program management. And I can't speak enough for like what that's done for our business. So, you know, in a startup, things like program management, it might be someone like me wearing that hat. Mm-hmm. So if I had a lot of budget, I'd probably put some into program management across each of the functions and you know, be that like a dedicated program manager within the revenue team or something like that. Right. Tooling and instrumentation to help serve this stuff. Um, I know big companies do that and have that, you know, have budget to do that kind of stuff. Whereas there's trade-offs you have to make at our stage of growth. So sure, I'd probably put some investment in program management and just making that, you know, machine actual. I'd say we're getting machine-like right now as a company. And then just like a little bit more, you know, human level, I'd like to get people together more, you know, in this environment. And I think there's a lot of barriers to that. I feel like if we had a couple commas of budget, we could probably come up with some creative ways to get folks together in a safe environment. And I miss that. I do. I think it's this remote world's awesome, but I do think we need to find ways to get everyone together, you know, more often these, again, with an unlimited checkbook, maybe we could design something where we can get folks together, you know, more often in a safe environment. Absolutely. Again, we talk about experiences, but in this case, we're talking about employee experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> Good stuff. So let's uh, switch and uh, transition more into the closing section. Who are like the two or three people that, if you look back, really played a pivotal role in your career growth? Yeah, there's a lot. If I had to pick two or three, uh, the, the first would definitely be Kevin Canarium, our, our CRO right now at Clary. Kevin, we met him at Oracle. And as a rep, he put me on a formal leadership development plan. And it always told me I was a leader and, and said, you know, 
told me that, you know, the people to be a leader and, you know, gave me the opportunity to, to really lean into that. So that, and, and Kevin, you know, he's the guy, he brought me into the high growth world. You know, he had left and did a, a company after Oracle, um, high growth company. So definitely Kevin for sure. And he's just been, I've, I've learned a ton from him. My CEO at Clary right now, Andy Byrne. Andy is a phenomenal leader, phenomenal human, phenomenal entrepreneur. I'd say what I've learned from Andy is, is really how to think about the big picture. And more importantly than that, even is just becoming a more human leader. I've always been pretty execution focused and Andy's really helped me think about the human side of leadership and what we're doing and, and the impact it has on people's lives and, and things like that. And Andy's been remarkable in that regard. Yeah, I'd say those are definitely the two. There's a guy named Mike Hogan at Oracle that started bringing me into a lot of the go-to-market stuff, which was really great, You know, letting me get exposure to that and contribute to that. And, and that, again, helped me realize how much I enjoy that stuff. And, and then probably my kids, they'd be the last one. My kids get to be balanced <laughs> and humble and force me to think about what's important. They've played a big role in it too. I love the way you actually include and mention kids. It just shows the human side. I think that clearly shows that. So yeah, wonderful stuff. Let's say, okay, if you were to turn back time, if you were to turn back clock and go back to day one of your go-to-market journey, what advice would you give to your younger self? Maybe it's me building off our human chat here, but it would be that. I, I would tell my younger self to be more human mm. and practice mindfulness and just kind of be more aware of, of the present and your surroundings. And early in your career, you can get really execution focused and hard charging. I was definitely in that bucket when I probably missed an opportunity to, I probably missed a lot of great experiences being narrowly focused on executing and not realizing, you know, all the great humans around me and, and how I could help play a role in their lives and the, the role they were playing in my lives. And that's mindfulness is something that Andy kind of brought to my life as well, which has been really helpful and, you know, meditating and things like this. So if I would have done that earlier, if I would have been, you know, more human earlier, if I would have been more mindful earlier, the journey may have been the same, but it may have just been a little bit more uh, peaceful and maybe more helpful to others along the way. I love that. Be more human and you're using tactics like mindfulness, not mindfulness, but specifically meditation. So wonderful. So that brings me to my last, last, last question, but a very important question. And that was... My question actually leads to the topic of why I so wanted to have you on the podcast, which is going back to the LinkedIn summary, you mentioned about how you break down your time over a week. So talk to me about and talk to the listeners about the importance. What is the motivation behind doing that? And what does it really remind you of or how does it help you become more human and mindful? Yeah, good question. Well, first, you know, I always tell my sales team that your LinkedIn, unless you're like applying for a job. Your LinkedIn is your resume for your customers. That's who's looking at you. When you're going into a meeting, someone's going to look you up. And so I try to be pretty transparent on who I am and, and what I think about and what I care about from a business and a personal perspective, just so when people meet me, they know what they're getting, good, bad, or indifferent. So you can go check it out. But yeah, so I mean, first, that whole exercise is it's as much of a uh, exercise in just thinking through planning what you'd like your time, to, you know, what you'd like your week or what you'd like your time to look like. My week doesn't look like that every single week, but that's certainly my intention. And when you write down a plan, right, it makes it a plan and I'm just like a thought. So that's where it started was, hey, if I write this down, maybe I'll live it more weeks than not. And yeah, then it just kind of comes down to me, you know, to thinking about you only have so many calories and so many hours in the day. Where do you want to invest those calories? And when I write it down and I realize like, okay, I'm a big Fred Kaufman fan. If you haven't read Fred Kaufman's Conscious Business book. I think it's the best book on leadership there is. 
And, you know, Fred talks about there's no such thing as work-life balance, because if you're saying it's a balance, that means when you're working, you're not living, or when you're living, you're not working. And that's not true. When you write it down, I'm spending maybe 50 plus hours a week doing work. And when I write it down on paper, I'm spending maybe 40 to 50 hours a week with my family. Correct. And so like really thinking about that, it allows you to put the sufficient calories into both of those buckets that, that you should. It's a realization moment. And, and then some of the other things, right? Health and mindfulness and fun, right? Just doing things that you enjoy and, you know, like realizing how little time you get to put into some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just a helpful exercise to kind of go through and, and really think about. Absolutely. hundred percent on that. I mean, I got exposed to that concept, I think from Brian Tracy, this whole book around and concept around manage your time, manage your life, right? If you manage your time, you're going to manage your life. And when I dug deeper into that, if you look at the table of contents over there, it breaks down time categories into seven or eight. Things like relaxation, things like reflection, family, work, income improvement, strategic. It's all of those. So I had that book. It was on my desk. And then when I looked up your LinkedIn summary, you practically broke down your time in those several buckets. Cool. <laughs> and I wish more people do that. I mean, that, that's the best way to manage your life after all. So manage your time. That's how you're going to manage your life. And that's how you become more human. And that will translate to being more mindful. For sure. For sure. Yeah. It's something that from early in my career, it's something I've done is, is set goals in each of those areas, right? And it changes, right? When you start the year, you think about what are the roles I'm going to play this year. And, you know, I remember early in my career, it was boyfriend and, you know, coworker and peer and, and things like this. And now it's father and it's son. Like I have to think about, you know, as my parents get older, you know, the role I play there and, you know, financial stability and health and all these things. Um, And, you know, just being intentional, setting goals around those things and checking in on them, you know, kind of regularly, you know, it helps. It's not that I don't want to call my parents and say hi, but if I don't like put intentionality around it, it might not happen for a couple of weeks, right? So you set goals around it, put it on the calendar, like you said, manage your time, you know, even if you only get 60% of it done, it's probably way more than you would have got done if, if you didn't write anything down. Absolutely. So wonderful conversation, Anthony. And so where can people find more about you and learn more about Clary? Sure. Yeah. You mentioned LinkedIn. LinkedIn's a good place. I, you know, I keep on top of LinkedIn. I think it's a great social network. Clary, uh, get us on clary.com. Go follow us on LinkedIn. We're hiring like crazy across every department and go to market. So come check us out. Uh, if you know anybody, and you know, like I said, I'm building out a, a verticals business right now. So, you know, if you know anybody that come from professional services and financial services and, and healthcare and things like this. I want to come join a good go-to-market team. Give me a shout. We're hiring. All right. Good luck, man. And good stuff. So I'll be cheering from the sideline for your team and carry overall. So wonderful conversation and good luck once again. You got it. Thanks, DJ. This is great. Hi there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the B2B Go-To-Market Leaders Podcast. I have all of the show notes and a full transcript on strative.com. S-T-R-A-T-Y-V-E dot com. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get a podcast, leave a rating and a review. Your comments will help other go-to-market professionals find this podcast.